is uh, advanced patient theory one unit three part five B. Uh, we're still talking about obstructive diseases. Let's go over a, a few others. So let's talk about um, aspiration. Um, I had a really interesting aspiration call um, years ago that uh, really threw me for a loop. And I can tell you guys this story. I can't tell PCB students this story because it's it's an odd odd story. And if you tell, uh, it's a unicorn story. If you tell PCP students unicorn stories, that's what they remember. They, you know, they, they sort of latch onto and you have to keep things a lot more black and white. But uh, we, got, we got a call for, uh, for this guy who had uh, chest pain. So code four, chest pain. We get there, this guy's in his late 40s and he's, um, I'll go up to his house and I knock on the door and he says, come in. So I open the door and he's sitting on the stairs and he's smoking a cigarette. And um, so I come in, I said, I'm Rob, one of the paramedics, my partner, so-and-so, can you put your cigarette out, please? And uh, he, says, he says, no, I'll be finished in a minute. He just lit it up, right? He said, no, I'll be, I'll be done in a minute. I, s I said, I, I can't really assess you and treat you if you're smoking a cigarette. You, you need to put your cigarette out. He was adamant, he wasn't gonna put a cigarette. He was pale, he was sweaty. And I said, <coughs> I understand you're having some chest discomfort. He says, yeah. So I get an OPQRST, and he's got chest pressure, non-radiating. Uh, he's a little short of breath. And uh, you know, what he's describing to me sounds like cardiac. And uh, after taking a set of vital signs, uh, we, we, we couldn't get at his chest to do a 12 lead because he was smoking a cigarette and he was adamant that we had to wait until he was finished. So, and then when he was finished, he stood up and he walked. So we walked to the ambulance, we get him in the back of the ambulance. Uh, I'm gonna do a cardiogram on him, but I decided to listen to his chest first. And um, I listen to his chest and I hear gunk, like crackles in his right apex. Uh, it was quite loud, and I couldn't hear it on the left side, and I couldn't hear it anywhere else. And um, I said, you know, this chest discomfort, when did it start? When I woke up. I said, did it wake you up, or, or did you wake up and then feel it? He said, it woke me up. And I said, uh, is it possible you vomited in your sleep? He said, yeah, I vomited. And um, uh, so he aspirated, and uh, it turned out not to be cardiac at all. So it was interesting. Um, uh, he presented exactly like a like a cardiac patient, like a cardiac ischemic patient, but um, it was it was aspiration. Um, so etiology uh, is uh, aspiration of other oropharyngeal gastric contents in the lower airs. Most commonly, we see this in um, the elderly population. Um, they may present with altered mental status, uh, or, or sorry, they may uh, maybe the result of altered mental status. Uh, more likely, you know, it's usually the the demented patient, the older patient who's altered mentally. Uh, they may have have had a previous stroke or head injury, and they may have difficulty swallowing. Um, it's uh, I shouldn't talk about myself very much, but uh, it's funny. I'm having uh, difficulty swallowing this year for the first time in my life and things get caught in the back of my throat and I'm starting to understand now why older people choke on their meds. So I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm probably gonna die from from a choking incident. <laughs> That's gonna <laughs> you know, or I'm gonna get pills caught in the back of my throat and my wife's gonna call nine one one and I'm gonna be saying, Don't call don't call don't don't <laughs> I'll get rid of this and you guys will arrive and I'll be saying, I, 
I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> so I'm really starting to appreciate, uh, you know, what it's like to be elderly. <clears throat> starting to get glimpses of it now. Uh, so they may have, um, you know, an inability to protect their, their airway. Uh, there may be loss of gag reflex, even from old strokes. And the sequela, of course, is, uh, you know, elderly patients sometimes aspirate small amounts. We see that in cerebral palsy patients as well who are spastic, they, they aspirate. I used to have a boss with CP who, um, who died from aspiration of gastric contents and, uh, and um, his, uh, his dinner and then threw up and then aspirated that as well. But um, the consequence of, you know, continuous small aspirations and pneumonitis and pneumonia. And uh, so, you know, uh, small amounts over long periods of time can, can result in the 911 call, which is more for the pneumonia. So we have to, you know, sort of try to determine why they've got this cough and fever. You know, is it uh, just uh, something they caught or is it uh, the result of re recurring aspirations? So it's important to get that history. So um, when we get a call, 911 call for aspirations, usually it's a new onset, less than an hour. Uh, they're dyspneic, they're tachypneic, they're tachycardic. They may or may not have a fever. Uh, they're only going to have a fever if this has been going on for days and they developed an infection and um, uh, a fever to combat it. They may be cyanose, but then again, you know, you, you know, is it a patient who's chronically cyanose or is this a new onset cyanosis? That's what you have to determine. And crackles are uh, typically apical, right? <clears throat> because they're aspirating. So when you're dealing with apical crackles, you're not looking at CHFers, you're looking at an aspiration. If you're looking at basilar crackles or posterior crackles, that might be a CHFer, but apical, apical crackles, especially, you know, not just if it's apical, but if it's apical and it's unilateral, uh, you can pretty much rule out CHF. <coughs> there may be diminished breath sounds. Um, a late sign would be a pleural friction rub, and a pleural friction rub would be, you know, the visceral and parietal pleura. Uh, there's an inflammatory process, and when they breathe in, there's a rub, and it's the sound of hair, basically. When you rub your hairs like this, that's what a pleural friction rub sounds like. So management is largely supportive, um, and if they're uh, um, IV access not necessary unless there's actual or potential need for fluids or meds, and uh, meds IV that is. Uh, but if they're bronchospastic, salbutamol is helpful. Uh, if they've got crackles and wheezes, salbutamol is helpful, either by MDI aerochamber, uh, if they're febrile, or by uh, nebulization. Uh, intubation rarely indicate it unless they're in respiratory failure. When these kind of patients I've seen quite often, um, people that get colder on the sicker end of things. Yeah. Um, you know, like poor muscle tone, but still have respiratory effort, breathing at like 42 a minute. Yeah. Very labored. You can kind of tell, like, you know, um, that five bucks respiratory therapist is going to have them intubated by the time we leave, right? Mm. Yeah. So if that's kind of the situation you're in, would you be okay to intubate or should you just try to ventilate with BVM and then get them to the hospital? So again, I come back to my, my, you know, my rule of if they're altered mentally and they've got three-word dyspnea, I tube them. And um, so um, now hospitals are sometimes not big fans of nasotracheal intubation and that's really the only way to intubate them in the field short of doing either medication-assisted intubation or rapid <coughs> sequence induction, which, which, we don't, which we don't do, right? So, um, 
And the trouble with um, rapid sequence intubation is number one, we don't do it. Number two, facilitated means you're going to um, sedate them and give them analgesia, and then you're probably going to lay them down, which is not good for these patients to begin with. So it's not it's not a good environment to be doing uh, a drug-assisted intubation. Um, so nasal intubation is a preferred route, and I've done nasal intubations where the hospital were quite happy that I nasally intubated, and I've done nasal intubations where the hospital were like, oh shit, you put a nasal tube in, you know, so you, know, you never know what kind of reception uh, you're going to get. So you have to decide based on whether you think um, you can adequately PPV them or whether you think they truly need to be intubated. So you can always start with PPV, right? Your partner does PPV. You see if their SATs improve, their entitled CO2s come down, and if they don't, I would just easily intubate them. It's, it's appropriate, it's indicated, it'll improve their condition. I had a lady um, give you an example, she was septic. She wasn't in septic shock, but she was clearly septic. She had diarrhea and, and vomiting for a week. Uh, she was febrile, she was quite hot, she was like temp of 41. And um, uh, she had uh, uh, coarse crackles in all lung fields, but not a CHF crackles, it was like a pneumonia. and and aspiration <coughs> and uh, she was uptunded like she was GCS I think of 11 or something and um, uh, we tried PPVing her but her head was sort of flopping like this all the time and she was difficult to hold in place and uh, so I said to my partner was PPVing I'm just going to nasally intubate her so we nasally intubated her you know we had her on the stretcher we nasally intubated her in the hall and it you know it it worked quite well and uh, you know, we were able to secure her airway and ventilate her quite nicely, and her SATs came up quite a bit, uh, and her color improved. So it, it's totally a judgment call, completely and utterly a judgment call. And I don't know that I can really give you a clear answer other than, you know, if you got someone who's that sick, altered mentally, three-word dyspnea, or nonverbal, um, I'd say they need to be nasally intubated. Can you orally intubate them? Like, if they're not attended, where... You know, some lidocaine might... Not with a GCS of 11. Yeah. No, GCS 11, I don't think you're going to get their mouth open. And you might even, uh, you know, um, just push them over the edge, and they end up going into trismus, and then you got trouble even PPVing them. So, um, yeah, unless they're GCS of 8 or less, you're looking at a... If you're looking at oral intubation, you're looking at a pharmacological uh, intubation. That's, at least that's been my experience. But nasal works. Um, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, we wouldn't go out there trying to nasally intubate a lot of patients, but, uh, you know, I probably nasaled one patient every two years, uh, which is more than the average. But uh, that's on the road. On the road, yeah. Um, but that's also because I uh, probably nasally intubated uh, over 100 patients in the early days when everyone was getting nasaled. <laughs> easily intubated, you know, when it, was, when it was a really popular thing. So it's it's not a difficult tube to put in. Um, and the first one you get in, uh, you'll feel pretty confident about the next one. Uh, if you miss the first one, that's a bit of a different story. But, um, Do you have any tips or tricks to it? Well, so they're sitting up, right? Yeah. Um, so if, if I'm nasally intubating Adam here, right? So Adam's sitting up, we'll say in this position, because, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to talk to him, explain what, he's, what I'm doing, right? He's got a GCS of seven, so he's not really paying attention. So Adam, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a tube in your nose and go through the explanation. Always go the right near, bevel towards the septum, 
and uh, obviously lubricate the tube. And I, I put it in, I gently coax it past the turbinates because that's where it'll get caught up. And he might fight it a little bit and I go, oh, this, right? And I'll continue to talk to him and say, you know, I know this is really uncomfortable, I'm sorry. And uh, we're gonna put the tube a little bit further down. And then when I get it close to where I think it's close to the glottis, uh, then I just wait. And I usually pull the trigger a little bit and just advance it. And this is where the patient fights it. So when it goes into the trachea, as long as you got air coming out of the tube, and you'll hear it, it's loud, right? As long as you get air coming out of the tube and they're fighting it, don't let it move. So, you know, come around, grab their head if you have to, hold the tube or get your partner to hold the head, hold the tube, inflate the balloon. You gotta have the BVM right there. Gotta connect it right away. And as soon as he takes a breath, assist. As soon as he takes a breath, assist. As soon as he takes a breath, assist. And after five, six assisted breaths, they start to settle down. And I'll continue to talk to them, say, you know, it's, <coughs> you've got a tube in your windpipe. I know it's uncomfortable. Um, and in this case, this lady, she just like, uh, her eyes would occasionally open, but at this point her eyes were just closed and she was just looked peaceful. Like once you get in and you start assisting, she was exhausted, right? So, so the only trick really is, is um, um, number one, talk to your patient. Number two, make sure the tube is lubricated. Number three, always right near is your first choice. Um, Number four, get it down far enough so it's close to the glottic opening and then wait for them to take a breath in and advance it. And if there's air moving in the tube, you're in the right place. No matter how much they fight it, you know the tube's in the right place. The nasal tubes usually end up pretty close to flush with the nair. It's not like a neural trachea tube where you're looking at 23 centimeters at the teeth. With a nasal tube, you're almost flush with the nair, maybe at this much at the most. And uh, you're unlikely to go on the right main stem. How do you know whereabouts it is? Like, do you have any tricks for that? Like, so that you know you have the right placement prior to trying to get into the trachea, or? You mean in terms of depth? Yeah. No, there's no trick for that. Um, there's no real trick that's effective. So, it's really more the uh, tube lumen that's important. So, uh, for a woman, I usually pick a seven. For a man, I might pick a, pick a 7.5, maybe an 8. Uh, and um, the, the length of it is generally not an issue. But if by some bizarre coincidence you went down too far, you'd hear it, right? So you'd hear air entry in the right, not in the left. And you just pull the tube out a couple of centimeters and reinflate the cuff and mm -hmm. good to go. Alex? How might be already to go with the molecular or your um, so you're more likely, th the place you're most likely to go is the esophagus. Right? Okay. Yeah. So if you go in the esophagus, um, you're not going to hear, hear air, mo air movement. You know you've gone um, into the esophagus. So what I do is I just pull it back to about the uvula. Um, if you're in the piriform fossa, you'll see tenting. So you'll see, you know, the neck coming out like this. So you got to look for that, right? Tenting on either side. That's the piriform fossa. Yeah. Uh, but the vallecula, no, because the tube's stiff enough that if you hit the vallecula, uh, you know, you're above the epiglottis, it'll probably fold the epiglottis and then, uh, you know, but um, you're more, you're far more likely to be posterior rather okay. than anterior. <coughs> and, you know, they're, uh, when they're sitting up, it's, it's probably easier to nasally intubate someone who's sitting up than lying down. If they're lying down, you can do a jaw thrust to get the tongue off the back so it doesn't drive the tube posteriorly. Uh, or and you use the, 
the the ring, the trigger, right, to give the tube some <coughs> swing to it. Uh, cystic fibrosis. Curiosity. Have any of you had a patient with CF? Exacerbation with CF? You have, eh? Uh, tell me about your patients with CF. What was the presentation? Uh, horrible lung sounds on auscultation. Like their chest just sounded horrible. I was super short of breath. Yeah. Um, very, very wet. Like lots and lots of secretions. Yeah. Um, yeah, extremely short of breath. All right. And anyone else? Yeah. He had like a transfer. He was going downtown for like a lung transplant. Oh, okay. It just sounded gross. I mean, he was like sounded really bad. Had mom and mom and mom and mom. When you say gross, you mean like crackles, wheezes? Yeah. Just one or? It just sounded like there's a lot going on in his lungs. Like a lot of crap down there. Yeah. Like every lung sound you hear all in one lung. It's like a rumbling? It's just everything. Yeah. 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 Thick, thick, tenacious. Yeah. And you had one as well? Okay, so wheezing. Yeah. And did you ventil uh, uh, ventilin them? Give them ventilin? Yeah, I don't think it helped very much. Though. No way. Yeah. It's funny, uh, CFers usually find their own way to hospital or they, uh, you know, they, they go see their specialist before they get really, really bad. I've never had a CFer, oddly enough. But, um, yeah, so it's a genetic disorder, and uh, they have abnormally thick and tenacious secretions. I love that word tenacious. When I think of tenacious, I think of, you know, fresh pizza out of the oven, you know, where the cheese just stretches. I had a guy who... Uh, <laughs> Is that gross? <laughs> I had a patient who hung himself, and he had this long piece of saliva going from his mouth to his his pants and it was just a big string of goop uh, and uh, it was very it was very impressive to look at uh, so they get stagnant mucus and that leads to recurring infections in the lungs uh, pancreas is affected as well it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually more common than I thought it's one in every 3,500 births uh, so they typically present with dyspnea chronic cough frequent lung infections think uh, and the treatment is largely supportive. So salbutamol PRN, um, IV PRN, PPV PRN, and um, uh, intubation only if they're in respiratory failure. It's funny, uh, um, you know, this CFers get lung transplants and they have to go through uh, psychological therapy because in their mind they still have diseased lungs, so it takes them quite a while to learn to breathe normally with uh, transplanted lungs. Could their lungs not get worse again once they get the transplant? Like once they get the Appar new lungs? Apparently not. Um, it's weird that with a genetic condition you think that they yeah. get It'd still be affected. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, at least not that I'm aware of anyway. Um, I think it's because it's like a congenital, like when it's a genetic condition that like they didn't have the gene to produce those chloride transports like from birth. Does that make sense? But the other person who did get whose good lungs they got they have the gene that transcripted for those chloride, like, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, they're I not guess. even there initially. So they're not there in the new lungs, and that's why. But it seems weird that you wouldn't just be able to no, do No, they are there in the new lungs. It's like a chloride, <coughs> it's like one, it's a gene. In the actual lungs themselves? I thought genes were... 
No, no, no. I understand what you're saying, but I don't think it's like one of those things. Like it's like red blood cells where they get replaced. Yeah. I think it's just you either you have them or you don't. Like they didn't have a gene that transcripted for the chloride transport, so then they end up getting like excessive chloride buildup, which just draws in water and gunk. Just out of curiosity, how how many of you think that it's um, ethically appropriate to um, edit genetics to wipe out major diseases like CF and ALS and things like that? Ethically appropriate to, to manipulate, uh, to edit genes to eliminate um, diseases? Yeah, so. <laughs> so, uh, so lung cancer, let's move on here. So lung cancer, the, the, uh, the one thing I find <laughs> interesting about lung cancer, cancer is uh, a terrible thing and I'm always sad when I encounter a, a cancer patient, but um, uh, the one thing I find interesting about lung cancers in particular is the lung sounds because um, uh, you're familiar with uh, bronchovesicular lung sounds. Has anyone heard that before where you, where you auscultate the chest and everything seems quiet until you uh, arrive on an area of consolidation and the sound is very loud? Like a pneumonia will give you consolidated, will give you bronchovesicular sounds. Uh, cancer tumors will give you bronchovesicular sounds. Anyone had that experience? Okay, so next time you have a lung cancer patient or a pneumonia patient, just auscultate in more spots. And uh, if you come across an area of consolidation with your stethoscope, you'll notice that it goes from, you know, quiet, 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 and then loud, like a like putting your stethoscope over the trachea. It's a bronchovesicular sound, so it it amplifies the sound. And uh, I see that, or I've heard that most commonly in lung cancer patients, um, and which is great when you've got a student with you, so they can listen to hear it as well. So um, lung cancer, so cigarette smoking is, um, you know, most common cause. Secondhand smoke is another major cause and genetic predisposition, of predisposition, predisposition rather, of course. And there are certain occupational causes, um, you know, silica, vinyl chloride, asbestos. And um, if you watch CNN in the morning, you'll catch all the mesothelioma uh, <laughs> commercials, right? <laughs> you know the demographic when you're watching CNN or some of the news stations you know, caters to the old men and women, you know. Get the free book. What's yeah. The, when you're talking about the sound in this area that gets louder, what's the, like? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure I can describe the mechanism, but it, uh, consolidated areas amplify the sound for some reason, and uh, how that works exactly, uh, uh, Google can probably explain so it better. the areas with the concrete is louder than the areas. Is louder, yeah, here. yeah. So pneumonias and uh, tumors, louder, bronchovesicular sounds. <coughs> so there's, uh, you know, with, uh, there's a chronic inflammatory process or cellular changes. Uh, uh, oftentimes uh, metastases precedes the diagnosis with lung cancer in particular, uh, unlike some other cancers that uh, usually present before metastases occur. So um, typically we get the 911 call because they're dyspneic and they've got a cough. Um, a persistent productive cough, there may be wheezing, there may be hemoptysis, and there may be some pleural effusion and pleural friction rub, uh, and they may have pneumos as well, right? So you got to watch for those when you auscultate the chest, auscultate carefully. Um, in terms of management, it's largely supportive. O2 PRN, IV access, 
there's any I issues with IV access? I was going to say only if they've got breast cancer and, and a, or a history of lymphedema, if they've had their lymph nodes removed from one side, if they've got a, both a breast, can breast, ca breast cancer and a lung cancer. Um, um, I was always taught that, um, that uh, a mastectomy is a contraindication for starting an IV in the same arm. Have you heard that too? No. It's, it's not a contraindication, but generally you try to avoid the arm with a mastectomy because if they've had their lymph nodes removed, if, you, if the fluid goes interstitial, it just doesn't absorb as well without the lymphatics. Um, so you're better to start an IV on the other side. Uh, but um, my wife uh, had a mastectomy and, she, and her surgeon said clearly, um, no, start an IV on either arm, wherever you can find a vein. So if they've got a nice vein on that arm. Uh, but the patient may tell you they've been told that you can't take a blood pressure on that arm or start an IV on that arm. And if they tell you that, I would just use the other arm then because there's no point in, you know, upsetting the patient over over that. Um, so do they have a central venous access device? If they do, uh, you can follow protocol for accessing that if you need to, if it falls under your protocol. And um, do they have any sort of chest drainage system? Um, we PPV them PRN. Is their chest drainage system working is it, or is it clogged? And um, sometimes chest drainage systems, they may just have a clot in the tubing. You can just squeeze the tubing and break up the clot and drain it. Um, but we don't really usually see drainage unless they're, you know, like the first few weeks post-op. Um, intubation PRN, but consider DNR. If they're DNR, then we generally avoid intubation and just go with PPV, right? Um, trust me, if you, if you intubate a patient as DNR, uh, even though you felt you couldn't PPV them, you're going to get harassed in the hospital. You're probably going to get a complaint from the doc to the base hospital. So you just got to keep that in mind, right? Try to, uh, but DNR, DNR only applies when they're dead, to be, to be crystal clear. And a lot of people just don't seem to understand that. And even some nurses and physicians don't seem to understand that. You don't just let them suffer because they're going to die anyway. Uh, we try to you know, make them comfortable, relieve pain, relieve discomfort, relieve dyspnea, um, and treat them appropriately. Um, you know, so I, I've given Ventolin to lung cancer patients who were DNR, and the hospital gave me a hard time over giving Ventolin. And I said, no, DNR applies when they're dead, not before then. Like, we don't let people suffer. So, yeah. What's that? Do not resuscitate. Yeah, do not resuscitate. It's not do not treat. Yeah. 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 A CHF patient, they're in acute respiratory distress. Yeah, I try to put myself in those circumstances. You know, I can't imagine being a CHF -er and struggling to breathe and I'm DNR and no one's, people are just going to let me there guppy on the stretcher. Wow. <laughs> I don't believe in the supernatural, but my brain would be thinking, become a ghost, an evil ghost, become a ghost, an evil ghost. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 